For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Eleventh chapter of Hebrews. Our biblical basis for our series on the book uh, on the history of the church and the great men and women who've gone before us is in the twelfth chapter of Hebrews. Let me just remind you of that. The first two verses. Therefore, seeing we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we said that this, this race of the Christian life that we are to live is to be lived in the consciousness of this great cloud of witnesses that surround us. And in the context, it's the great men and women of faith that have preceded us, a roll call of which we find in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews lists as many as he uh, wanted to list and giving little summaries of their life. And then, beginning in verse 32, he says, through the end of that chapter, and what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they were about, went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive uh, what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And the one phrase that stands out to me in ver is verse 38, men or men and women of whom the world was not worthy. And this statement is no less true of the Scottish Covenanters of the 17th century as it is of the people that are described in this passage of Scripture. And many of the things that uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews says uh, the faithful people of God experienced in persecution, the Scottish Covenanters also experienced these various things, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, in perseverance of their faith rather than compromising or giving it up. So last week we began looking at these men and women of whom the world is not worthy and was not worthy, the Scottish Covenanters. There's a lot written on the subject, although uh, in scholarly books, although the average American knows nothing about them. And by and large what they do know is negative. I picked up a book one time, I told you, that was a book written within the past couple years 
on the Scotch-Irish, history of the Scotch-Irish people. And in it, there was a chapter on the Covenanters, uh, who the author of the book said were so brutal and bloodthirsty and evil that they were the 17th century uh, equivalent to the modern Irish Republican ar Army, one of the leading terrorist groups in the country. And one person who has not helped in this scandalous slander of the great Scottish Covenanter Presbyterians is the great and the Christian Sir Walter Scott. Sir Walter Scott's books shaped uh, the, uh, the, the mindset, particularly of Southerners, before the war between the states. I can't recommend his books to you high enough, but Sir Walter Scott had a prejudice toward the goals and motives of those who persecuted the Covenanters, and so as a result, in his books, the Covenanters don't get good press. So Sir Walter Scott, as great as he is, is not a reliable witness in his, accurate, in his uh, inaccuracy regarding the Presbyterian Covenanters of the 17th century. But two equally famous literary artists were, and I recommend to you their writings. One is Robert Louis Stevenson, and the other is Daniel Defoe, writer of, of uh, Robinson Crusoe. Someone, uh, one time when Robert Louis Stevenson was writing an essay answering all the various other literary critiques of his writings in which these scholars said that uh, Robert Louis Stevenson shaped his style after this particular uh, writer that went before him or that particular era or that particular style. And finally, an he wrote an article answering all of these critics showing, uh, trying to interpret uh, Lewis, Robert Louis Stevenson. He said, they're all wrong. I've tried to imitate the writing of the Scottish Covenanters. Daniel Defoe, writer of Robinson Crusoe, a great uh, historian and defender, sympathetic defender of the Covenanters, said that the cruelties and the tortures committed in just one year in 1685 against the Presbyterians was worse, in his words, than the Roman emperors and popish inquisitors. In one year, the persecution the Scottish Presbyterian Church received was worse than the persecution the church received under the Roman emperors in the first and second centuries, and worse than the Reformed Church in Europe experienced under the Spanish Inquisition. Now, you know of the thousands upon thousands of people that died in the Inquisition. And you know of the who knows how many martyrs of the faith in the first century. But Daniel Defoe said, in one year, in, 18, uh, in 1685, 1685, there were more barbarities and cruelties against these faithful people than under Roman emperors and popish inquisitors. Now, what's the truth about these people? Well, let me read you a story about a man, true story, about a man who one time, an English merchant, you know, Englishmen and Scotsmen have never got along that well, you know. I know of a dictionary written by an Englishman in which oats, oats, O-A-T-S, is defined as something which horses eat in England and which men eat in Scotland. So there's never been that much love lost. But here was an English merchant 
who visited Scotland on business about the year 1650. He went to hear three of the greatest Covenanter preachers in Scotland, a man by the name of Robert Blair, another by the name of Samuel Rutherford, and another named David Dixon. When he got back home in England, he was asked, what, what news have you brought us from Scotland? And this businessman, who was never known for any particular interest in Christianity, answered, great and good news. I went to St. Andrews, Scotland, where I heard a sweet, majestic-looking man, Robert Blair, and he showed me the majesty of God. After him, I heard a little fair man, Rutherford, and he showed me the loveliness of Christ. I then went to Irvine, where I heard a well-favored, proper old man with a long beard, Dixon, and that man showed me all my heart. And because of listening to these three sermons, this merchant became a Christian. There's the constant emphasis of the preaching of the Covenanters. The majesty of God, the loveliness and greatness of Jesus Christ, and the expose of the depravity and the sinfulness and the need of the human heart. And it was that kind of preaching and that kind of emphasis that God used through the preaching of John Knox and later particularly through the Covenanters to bring revival to a whole nation. Remember that Scotland as a nation experienced revival and that when it changed religions, it was created into a brand new nation, a Christian nation. Now let's go back. We've got to get to the Covenanters. The Covenanters are in the 1650s and following, or 1630s. We last week reviewed the Protestant Reformation in Scotland with John Knox. I want us just to remind ourselves a little bit of what happened after that. John Knox was in the, in the late middle 1500s. After Elizabeth, when James I, James Stuart I, became king of England and of Scotland, you remember he believed in the divine right of kings. He not only believed that the king was above the law, he believed the king was the law, and that there was no power above the king, and the subjects were as accountable to him as they were to God, that his will was the source of law. And he was determined to be the head of both church and state. And he was continually trying to extend his tyranny over every aspect of English and Scottish culture in church and in state. And so he would do various things. He would persecute the church. He would declare that no presbytery, no general assembly of the Church of Scotland could meet without his permission. In fact, he abolished at one time presbyteries and placed bishops in their place with full authority. He declared it treason for any Presbyterian preacher to speak out against the bishops. These were called the Black Acts when he tried to destroy Presbyterianism and freedom and reestablish Anglicanism and tyranny in Scotland. After James died, his son Charles Stuart I became king, and he was even more severe and more dedicated in his advancement of his own authority over church and state. He was uh, encouraged and pushed on by the tyrannical extreme policies of men like Archbishop Laud. His daddy, James, knew the Scottish mind and therefore, even though he was tyrannical, always tried to be shrewd and careful because you don't want to upset these folks. Charles I never understood that. So not only did he get the Presbyterian people mad at him, he, he offended the clergy, and then he began to also offend the powerful nobles of Scotland, and that was a mistake. 
he seized their lands and their properties, which they had possessed ever since they seized them from the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church in the Protestant middle, uh, Reformation in the middle 1500s. And Charles I was determined to be thorough in his reform of Scotland. He sought to impose Anglicanism upon the people, to squelch Presbyterianism. He made them take an oath of allegiance to his supremacy over church and state. If they weren't willing to do that, then you could not teach in any college or any school. All private meetings of ministers were prohibited. No one was allowed to criticize anybody else from the pulpit. And liberty was tremendously violated and infringed upon. Until one day in Edinburgh at the great St. Giles Cathedral. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever seen pictures of it? The skyline of Edinburgh, it's always there. Rather than a cross at the top of the steeple, there's no steeple. There is this crown on top of this massive uh, structure representing the Lordship of Christ. That's where Knox preached. That's where the faithful Calvinists had preached. Well, now in the 1630s, they're forcing the Anglican liturgy upon this bunch of Presbyterians. They believe that the Anglican liturgy and all these rites are innovations, additions to the Word of God. Their regulative principle is, remember, if it's not commanded, it is forbidden. So the priests come in, the bishops, with all of their pomp and circumstance, and the, they begin their liturgical service in John Knox's con uh, church and sanctuary years after his death. That was too much for a little farm woman named Jenny Geddes, G-E-D-D-E-S. For right in the middle of the service as they were about to impose the liturgy, Jenny Geddes stood up and said in this distinct Scottish accent, which I cannot imitate, speaking to the bishop, she says, Villain, you'll not say the Mass in my church, at which point she threw her stool at him. And that was the beginning of a movement that led to the demise of tyranny in Scotland. Scotland's answers we saw last week to Charles I trying to squelch their freedom and keep them from being Calvinists and forcing them to be Anglicans, their response as a nation was the National Covenant signed in February the 28th, 1638, by some 60,000 people in one place alone, in Greyfriars. If there's any place that you can go in your life, go to Greyfriars Church and Cemetery, where you not only have the prison where the Covenanters were herded like animals, you not only have the open graves where they were butchered and killed and then poured in these open graves, all because they were not going to give up their reform principles. But you also have the place where the National Covenant itself was formed, which we read last week, and there's some extra copies of it out this, where these people pledged their lives, their goods, their honors, to the point of death of preserving the Reformed faith and freedom with it in Scotland. And uh, it's, it is one of the forebearers of our own Declaration of Independence, though our Declaration of Independence, as far as spirituality is concerned, is a far cry beneath the National Covenant of Scotland in 1938, uh, 1638. This was not just a bunch of uh, preachers trying to impose their will upon the nation. This document represented the will of the Scottish people. We've had enough tyranny. We've had enough Roman Catholicism. This people's been reformed by the Word of God, and we pledge our goods, our lives, and our honor to the preservation of the Reformed faith in this land. 
Among those who signed were everything from great lords to peasants. There in Grey Friars, the service of the signing of this covenant started at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and it went on hour after hour after hour till way in the night. People would stand before they would sign their names and swear a bond, swear an oath that they would be faithful. And after they signed their names, many would sign after their names until death. Others would cut their veins and take the blood and the quill and sign their names in their own blood. Virtually the whole of Scotland signed this document. What was the outcome of it all? Number one, these covenanters, that's why they're called covenanters, they signed the National Covenant. These covenanters demanded the withdrawal of the Book of Liturgy of the Anglican Church from Scotland. They demanded the abolition of the High Commission, which was a court that had been used by the Stuarts to persecute the faithful people of God. They demanded the lawful and free General Assembly meeting of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. And they demanded a free parliament representative of the people where they could uh, bring their complaints and call for redress against the tyranny of the king. What do you think Charles I did when he found out about all this? Here's Charles I's humble response. I will rather die than yield to their impertinent and damnable demands. For it is all one to yield to be no king in a very short time. I will only say that so long as this covenant is in force, whether it be with or without explanation, I have no more power in Scotland than as a Duke of Venice, which I will rather die than suffer. Boy, he understood the issues, didn't he? He said, as long as these Presbyterians are in power and the covenant is in force, I am no tyrant. I have no power to rule in Scotland. And therefore, I'll, I'd rather die than give in to these Presbyterians. Do you see? He understood. You cannot have tyranny in a culture that is predominantly Presbyterian. Charles I understood it. Well, a general assembly was called of the church. Now, remember the courts of the church. In the Bible, you have a session, which is elders who govern a local congregation. In the Bible, you have a presbytery, where elders from various congregations meet together in a certain region and govern the churches in that region. When all the elders of all the churches meet together officially that share the same organization and share the same confession of faith, that's called a general assembly. So the General Assembly of the whole Church of Scotland met. It hadn't met for 40 years without restraints. And so the first thing it did was annul all of the acts of the assemblies prior to it that betrayed Presbyterianism and the Reformed faith. By one vote, it swept away all Anglican, Arminian, and Erastian principles. What were Anglican principles? Anglican principles says that... Uh, you may innovate. You may have innovations in the worship of God. Presbyterianism says you can only do what God has commanded in His Word. Arminianism is, places the emphasis on man's decision and denies the sovereignty of God and salvation. Erastianism believed that the church was just a department of state rather than a separate commonwealth with its own officers accountable to the living God. And this general assembly courageously swept all these alien principles that had been away that had been forced on Scotland by James and by Charles under their lead under the leadership of the great Alexander Henderson. 
Knox was the first great leader in 1650s. Melville, Andrew Melville was the second great leader in the 1580s. And now Alexander Henderson was the third great leader who with the previous two believed that in the church Christ, not man, is king. So this Scottish Presbytery uh, met and it was comprised of 53 presbyteries, 144 ministers, 96 ruling elders, some of them the highest nobles of the land. Two figures played key roles in this general assembly that was so important in the history of Scotland. One was the Presbyterian preacher, Alexander Henderson, who was over 50 years old, which was old for those days. It's real young now. But it was old for those days. And he stepped out of an obscure rural pastorate to become the helmsman of the whole church. And the other man was the king's representative, the Marquis of Hamilton. The Marquis of Hamilton's mother was a zealous covenanter, but he had neither depth of character nor strength of will. And so he stood with the king. He was the official representative of the king of this presbytery meeting. So as soon as uh, the general assembly meeting, so as soon as the general assembly meeting begins, Hamilton not elected from a church as a preacher, as an elder, but as a representative of the king in Scotland. Hamilton raises two objections. He says, first of all, I object to the presence of ruling elders in this general assembly because Charles I fears their influence. Secondly, I deny the right of this assembly to discipline and excommunicate bishops in the church. Well, he tried his best to change the mind of the assembly. He couldn't do it. So he left the assembly in defeat and in tears and with the king's authority declared this general assembly to be dissolved and all of its decisions invalid and everybody who's from out of town must leave the city of Glasgow within 24 hours or suffer for it. What do you think the general assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland did? They went on with their business. Alexander Henderson said, we must remain in session until all of our work's completed. It's not completed yet. So you see, things are heating up. The king's representative said, you're dissolved. If you're not out of town, you're punished. The Presbyterian Covenanters continued to meet. What was the business they had yet to complete? <clears throat> the excommunication of eight of the king's bishops. the deposing from office of six more of the king's bishops. Now, this was a church, not a state. You're excommunicated and deposed from office because of wickedness and ungodliness in your life, not because of particular political affiliations. So they were doing what they had the full right to do. These, many of these bishops were ungodly, immoral men, and they were, being, that were forced upon them by the Stuarts. And so now they have excommunicated the worst of them, deposed the ones that are not quite as bad. Then they proceeded to reaffirm the national covenant and upon the ruins of Anglicanism in Scotland, the great building of Presbyterianism arose once again. Scottish Presbyterians understood something. They learned a lot about from John Knox's insight into seeing the consequences of decisions. And they, they believed that the Roman Catholic Church, and most particularly the Pope, was determined to accomplish nothing less than the restoration of all church property and wealth in England to the Roman Catholic Church 
and the return of all Protestants to Roman Catholicism. They believed that's what the Pope's goal was in England. So after they cleaned their own house, the Covenanters volunteered to assist the English in cleaning theirs. Because they believe if we don't help our brother Calvinists in England to triumph over Roman Catholic influences and tyranny, then England will become Roman Catholic and that will be a serious menace to Protestantism and freedom in Scotland. And so, during the civil wars in England, the English Parliament now, which was at war with Charles I, and Charles I had his army and was trying to raise armies from uh, soldiers from Roman Catholic Scots and from uh, Roman Catholic Irish and the like, the Puritan Parliament realized that it was going to need assistance in order to stand against the power of Charles I to declare war upon this Puritan nation. So the English Puritans made an appeal to Scotland for assistance against the King of England in the summer of 1643. By that time, Scotland had been Presbyterian and Reformed for, for uh, decades, a covenanted nation for decades. The English people wanted an alliance with Scotland to secure the civil liberties of Englishmen. Scotland wanted to have an alliance with England to preserve her religious liberty and the crown rights of King Jesus over the church. And so if there was going to be any kind of alliance between these two nations, it had to be both political and religious. It had to be both a compact, a, co a contract, and a covenant. And so out of that, in 1643, came the Solemn League and Covenant, which was not simply a loose agreement between churches and religious people in two different countries, but which was an alliance between two nations. Understand that. The Solemn League and Covenant was a document that was signed by the Parliament of Scotland and the Parliament of England and the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and the Westminster Assembly that was sitting in London at the time. And this Solemn League and Covenant had at its heart called for and committed these two nations to the preservation of the Reformed faith in Scotland in its worship, its doctrine, its liturgy, its discipline, its government, according to the model of the best Reformed churches, which at that time were the Presbyterian churches in Scotland and the Presbyterian churches in Geneva and Switzerland. And the Solemn League and Covenant not only called for the preservation of the Reformed faith in Scotland, but the reformation of the church in England in its doctrine and liturgy and practice and government uh, and worship according to the model of the best Reformed churches, i.e. the Presbyterian Church in Scotland and the Presbyterian Churches in Geneva. So when you think of the Sodom League and Covenant, just remember those two words, preservation and reformation, that they dedicated their wealth, their power, their armies, everything, these two nations, to the preservation of the Reformed faith and the reformation of the Church of England according to the Westminster confession of faith in essence. Now Scotland didn't have to help them. Scotland had already won its victories. It was an act of faith, an act of courage, and an act of unheard of compassion that moved Scotland to hazard its own triumphs and its own peace to save the Puritan cause in England. Then came Oliver Cromwell. The king, Char king, King Charles, lost his head. Tyranny was put down. 
the Reformed faith was in the dominance, and the Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterian Scotland never had a higher spiritual moment than it did during the administration of Oliver Cromwell. You remember Oliver Cromwell had to send his armies into Scotland and destroy uh, one segment of Scottish people who wanted to bring Charles II back to the throne, and so he whipped them good and proper at Dunbar, Scotland. Many of the Covenanters uh, were opposed to, to supporting the king. Those who were opposed to supporting the king were called the protesters. Those Covenanters that wanted the Stuarts back on the throne were always looked upon as compromisers by the stricter of the Covenanters. Cromwell identified with these strict Covenanters. And while Cromwell administered Scotland, uh, thousands of people were converted. Well, let me just read to you a first-hand witness. Scotland wasn't perfect. It had a lot of tremendous sins. But because of Cromwell's strong and godly and stable discipline, Scotland blossomed spiritually. Let me give you an example. Let me give you a description. What was Scotland like uh, by the time Cromwell died? Listen. At the king's return, that is the restoration of the Stuart monarchy after Cromwell's death, at the king's return, every parish had a minister, every village had a school, every family almost had a Bible, yea, in most of the country all the children of age could read the Scriptures, every minister was obliged to preach three times a week, to lecture and catechize once, besides other private duties wherein they abounded. None of them might be scandalous in their conversation or way of life or negligent in their office so long as a presbytery stood. And among them were many holy in conversation and eminent in gifts. In many places the Spirit seemed to be poured out with the Word both by the multitude of sincere converts and also by the common work of reformation upon many. There were no fewer than sixty aged people, men and women, who went to school that even they might be able to read the scriptures with their own eyes. I have lived many in a, I have seen many in a par, I have lived in many parishes where I've never heard an oath, never heard anybody cuss. And you would have to ride many miles before you heard anybody. Also, you could not for a great part of the country have lodged in a family where the Lord was not worshipped by reading, singing, and public prayer. Nobody complained more of our church government than our tavern keepers, whose ordinary lamentation was their trade was broke and people were becoming sober. And the man who more than any other who helped to secure for this land this Sabbath rest of godliness was misunderstood, resisted, and denounced. And his name was Oliver Cromwell. So the whole of the nation was in the midst and throes of real spiritual revival. Now, what was the impact of the restoration of the Stuart monarchy upon the Church of Scotland? This is the real beginning of the story of the persecution of the Covenanters. During the restoration, now you remember Cromwell died, 16, and then in the late 1650s, the Stuarts, with their tyranny, came back to the throne. Charles II was restored. So during the Restoration, the Church of Scotland was thrown into a furnace of persecution, stripped of her glory of the Reformation, and subject to 28 years of bloody persecution. Charles II wasn't on the throne long. 
when abandoning himself to debauchery and immorality, he proceeded to overturn the whole work of reformation in the church and in the state in Scotland, which you remember he had solemnly sworn to uphold when he personally took the oath of the National Covenant. By bribery and intimidation, Charles II bought the Scottish Parliament. He packed the Scottish Parliament with hungry, ambitious, money-hungry men who would support his plans. And once he had his men in place and his bought Parliament, the first step for the subversion of the Reformed faith, remember at heart he was a Roman Catholic, the first step toward the, sub the subversion of the Reformed faith and of liberty in Scotland which was the foundation for all the persecution that followed, was a law that was passed in 1661 called the Act of Supremacy. And in the Act of Supremacy, Parliament of Scotland made it the law of the land that the King of England, this debauched, immoral papist, is the head of the church. He had all kinds of illegitimate children. And Parliament declared him to be the head of the church of these godly, Covenanters, as well as the head of state. The second step to subvert Presbyterianism and end freedom in Scotland was the oath of allegiance, which was required of all people in places of power and influence that they submit themselves and acknowledge the supreme power of the King of England over the Church of Scotland and made it high treason if you did not take the oath of allegiance. So you see where things are heading. The third step was the Recisory Act, R-E-C-I-S-S-O-R-Y, -S -S -I, I reckon. The Recisory Act, and that law annulled all reformed parliaments from 1638 to 1650. In other words, it didn't just annul all of their acts. It said there has not been a legal parliament to set before uh, since 1638. They annulled all the parliaments. Declared that every parliament that met from 1638 to 1650 was rebellious and treasonable. They said that the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant were to be condemned as unlawful oaths. And the great Glasgow Assembly, over which Alexander Henderson was the moderator, was denounced as seditious and unlawful. You see, war is being declared now against these Presbyterians. But it wasn't enough that the work of Reformation in Scotland be buried under all of these terrible legal enactments. The king wanted the grave of Presbyterianism to be watered with the blood of martyrs. The first victim was Archibald Campbell, the Marquis of Argyle, A-R-G-Y-L-L-E. Archibald Campbell, Marquis of Argyle, is an interesting character, sometimes not able to figure out. But he was a godly man. He opposed the execution of Charles I by Oliver Cromwell. He was one of the very first men to crown Charles Stuart II as the King of Scotland. But even all of this could not atone for his leading part in the civil wars against the tyranny of Charles I and in guiding Scotland with Cromwell against the royal court. 
Charles II particularly hated the Marquis of Argyle because it was the Marquis of Argyle that had forced him to swear allegiance to the National Covenant of Scotland if Scotland was to help him regain the throne. So Argyle was sentenced to death for treason. He received his sentence of death with calmness of soul. And when his execution was publicly announced in the court, he said publicly, quote, I had the honor to set the crown upon the king's head. And now he hastens me to a better crown than his own. Let me read to you some of the last things that this great man said. This book, which I highly recommend to you, is a great book, The Story of the Scottish Church. Jennifer Clitt got this for me in England, uh, Scotland. The Story of the Scottish Church by Thomas McCrie, M-C-C-R-I-E. If you can find it, get it. Every page of it is worth reading. If you see mine, most every line is underlined in the whole book. Let me read to you uh, some things. They lock him up in the tower. His wife greets him. She comes to him. And he said to his wife, he only has a few days to live, quote, They've given me till Monday to be with you, my dear. Therefore, let us make for it. And he embraces her. And she's indignant at the unjust sentence that is given against him. And she says, the Lord will require it. The Lord will require it. He tells her to be still. And he says to her, they may shut me in where they please, but they cannot shut out God from me. I am as content to be here as I was in the tower, was as content there as I was when at liberty, and hope to be as, in, as content on the scaffold as any of them all. So here's what he said from the scaffold. Took him up the steps to the scaffold where he'd be executed. As he was standing there, the doctor that was always on hand took his pulse, found out his pulse was normal. Can you imagine having a normal pulse and you're fixing to die in a few minutes and it's just beating as calmly as he was sitting in a chair reading a book? He says, as he's addressing the people gathered there, God has laid engagements on Scotland. We are tied by covenants to religion and reformation. Those who were then unborn are yet engaged. And it passes the power of all the magistrates under heaven to absolve from the oath of God. These times are like to be either very sinning or very suffering times. And let Christians make their choice. There is a sad dilemma in the business, sin or suffer. And surely he that will choose the better part will choose to suffer. Others that will choose to sin will not escape suffering. They shall suffer, but perhaps not as I do, pointing to the instrument of execution, but they shall suffer worse. Mine is but temporal, theirs shall be eternal. 
When I shall be singing, they shall be howling. I have no more to say but to beg the Lord, and when I go away, that he would bless everyone that stays behind. And on May the 27th, 1661, the Marquis of Argyle is put to death. The next victim in the war against the Church of Scotland was a young minister by the name of James Guthrie. That's Ken to Becky Thompson, uh, Greninger. James Guthrie, actually you're kin to his cousin William. James Guthrie, who was a minister of Sterling. His crime, his capital crime was his zeal for the cause of the covenanted reformation. He was an active promoter of the causes of the protesters. Remember who the protesters were. There were the Scottish people who did not want to have Charles Stuart as king. And they did not assist in fighting at Dunbar against Oliver Cromwell. But what sealed the doom of this Presbyterian preacher, James Guthrie, is that he was appointed by the General Assembly in 1650 to publicly announce the excommunication of the Earl of Middleton. Now, the Earl of Middleton was the king's representative in Scotland and had the highest authority in Scotland under the king. And he was the one who, after, the, after Middleton was tried and found guilty of immorality, etc., by the Church of Scotland, he was the one that was given the assignment to publicly announce the excommunication from the church of the most powerful man in Scotland, which he did. The indictment against him was charged him with many offenses, amounting in the eyes of his adversaries to high treason. But especially did they convict him because of a great book that he wrote called The Causes of God's Wrath Against Scotland. If you can find that anywhere, it's worth getting. I've never seen it. Get me one, too, if you find it. The Causes of God's Wrath Against Scotland. This book isn't as famous as another, but it had the honor of being placed on par with Samuel Rutherford's book, Lex Rex, The Law is King. Lex Rex and the causes of the Lord's... Uh, Lex Rex was a bestseller in the United States in the, 17, uh, in the late 1700s. And it's still being printed to this very day. Both these books, Lex Rex and the causes of the Lord's wrath against Scotland, were publicly burned by the hangman and if anybody possessed a copy of either book, it was treason against the king. I mean, that's worse than owning a Cuban cigar in America. <laughs> that it was a treasonous act to own either Rutherford or Guthrie's book. In his book, here's why they didn't like it. Enlisting and explaining all the causes of God's anger and judgment against Scotland, he says, one of the causes is Scotland's part in the crowning of Charles II as the King of Scotland and England. That didn't go over well with Charles. On every page of his book, as well as, as Rutherford's book, you see the emphasis of the crown rights of Jesus Christ and his church, the freedom of a man's conscience held captive by the word of God, and the falsehood of the divine right of kings, and with that, tyranny. The indictment of Guthrie reveals how much they hated him, and how busy this fellow must have been. I love this indictment. I mean, just see how he really had to work to accomplish all this. Here's what they found him guilty of. This Presbyterian preacher. 
this is the law's indictment. Quote, he did contrive, complot, counsel, consult, draw up, frame, invent, spread abroad, disperse, speak, preach, declaim, utter, diverse, and sundry vile seditions and treasonable remonstrance, declarations, petitions, instructions, letters, speeches, preachings, declamations, and other expressions tending to the vilifying and condemning slander and reproach of his majesty, his progenitors, his person, majesty, dignity, authority, prerogative, royal, and government. That's a busy fella. Well, that was the charges against him. So Guthrie was arrested in 1660, not long after Charles II came to the throne, and he was tried and, found, and, and convicted in February 1661 before the infamous drunken parliament. Now understand that the parliament that Charles II bought in, in Scotland has been ever since known as the drunken parliament. Here it made decisions that resulted in the martyrdom of thousands of people. And most of the time, nobody in the parliament was sober. So he is convicted before the drunken parliament and they sentenced him to be hanged and beheaded and that his head be placed on a high pike where everybody could see it, where his head was placed and remained for 27 years. You see how much they hated Guthrie. They confiscated all of his estates and property, and they sentenced his wife and his daughter and all of his posterity to be perpetual beggars in England and Scotland forever, never being able to own any property. The day of his death, he arose at four o'clock in the morning for private worship, and when he was asked by his prison mate how he was, James Guthrie said, quote, very well, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He, another, uh, he's another one of these men that as he was going to the scaffold, stood on the ladder and preached to the people gathered around. In fact, James Guthrie, as he was going to be uh, hanged and beheaded, stood there on the scaffold and preached for an hour. And from those who were there, there is the report that he preached for an hour with all of the calmness and composedness of one who was delivering a sermon rather than giving his last words. What were they? He said to this great crowd who stood there very silent, I take God to record upon my soul, I would not exchange this scaffold with the palace and mitre of the greatest bishop in Britain. Blessed be God who has shown mercy to me, to such a wretch, and has revealed his son in me, and made me a minister of the everlasting gospel, and that he hath deigned in the midst of much contradiction from Satan and the world to seal my ministry upon the hearts of not a few of his people and especially in the station where I was last, I mean the congregation in Presbytery of Sterling. Jesus Christ is my life and my light, my righteousness, my strength, my salvation, all my desire. Him, O oh Him, I do with all the strength of my soul commend to you. Bless Him, O oh my soul, from henceforth even forever. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. 
for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And just as they have the rope around his neck and they put the napkin over his eyes so that they can't see the expression on his faith in death, seconds before his death, he lifts the veil. And he says, the covenants, the covenants, they shall yet be Scotland's reviving. And he dies. Story after story after story can be told about men and women like this. And we'll look at some more next week, particularly two women. Well, with Guthrie out of the way, the tyrants assisted by the bloodthirsty Scottish Archbishop James Sharp intensified their assault on the church. I don't want you to ever forget the name James Sharp. You and I will probably never see him in all of eternity. James Sharp was an apostate Presbyterian who signed the covenant and who was bought and became a bloodthirsty killer and archbishop for the sake of the king. Parliament had been bought, but the vast body of Scottish people were Presbyterian. Many nobles and wealthy gentlemen were on the side of the Covenanters. The ministers of the Church of Scotland were decidedly Presbyterian. But on May the 8th, 1662, the bishops were fully restored to all of their previous authoritarian power. Parliament passed a declaration which all people in all public places of influence were to subscribe or they would become objects of persecution. And here's what, if you were a person in a place of authority, school, church, commerce, whatever, you had to take this vow. I do sincerely affirm and declare... Now, bear in mind, now this is a covenanting nation. Here you're being for... Let's say you're a whole nation full of covenanters. You've signed your name in blood. And now they're telling you you have to sign this oath or suffer. Now I want you to listen with, that, listen with, with those kinds of ears. Here's the vow you have to take or suffer. Quote... I do sincerely affirm and declare that I judge it unlawful for subjects under the pretext of reformation or any other pretext whatsoever to enter into leagues and covenants or to take up arms against the king and all gatherings, petitions that were used in the beginning and carrying on of the late troubles were unlawful and seditious and particularly that these oaths whereof the one was commonly called the National Covenant were and are in themselves unlawful oaths and that there lieth no obligation upon me or upon any of the subjects from the said oaths to endeavor any alteration of the government of the church or state as it is now established by the laws of the kingdom. You had to take an oath repudiating the covenant. You think they do it? But to harass them even further, on May the 29th, 1662, on the anniversary of the king's restoration, Parliament declared a holiday to the Lord to celebrate his restoration. And on that day, in public, in Edinburgh, by the hands of the hangman, the National Covenant and the Solemn League of Covenant were torn to pieces. Within a short time after that, Parliament ordered all ministers in Scotland to submit to the bishop's authority or you would be declared a rebel against the king. When the archbishop complained that no ministers were submitting to him, 
and that didn't intimidate anybody into taking the oath, an act was passed banishing all those ministers from their manses and churches who'd been installed and ordained since 1649. That was mostly young men who were Calvinists who refused to take the oath. This was another step toward bloody persecution. Then the military was ordered to pull any minister out of his pulpit who went on preaching after this law was passed. 400 ministers in western and southern Scotland chose to be ejected from their churches rather than comply with the tyrants. So in the dead of winter, they were turned out of their homes and their churches and deprived of all income. Over a third of the ministers of the whole church were silenced and all the ministers in southern and western Scotland. They all preached their last sermon on the same Sunday. And one man said that Scotland was never witness to such a Sabbath as the last one on which these ejected ministers preached. Well, with 400 at least empty pulpits, that left a burden on the shoulders of the bishops to supply all these vacant pulpits with preachers, which was far easier said than done. No one from the southern and western part of Scotland could be persuaded to fill these pulpits because they wanted to stand with the Covenanters, not with the king. So the bishop looked to the highlands in the north. Now the highlands were predominantly, uh, were made, uh, 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 it was where the, the Stuart supporters lived. The highlanders were Stuart supporters, they were Roman Catholics, and they were pagans. And so that's where the bishops had to go to get the preachers for the Church of England in Scotland. They took uneducated, inexperienced, hungry boys and teenagers to be the pastors of the Presbyterian churches of Scotland. Because that's all they could find. They didn't even profess to be Christians. They just needed jobs. Bishop Burnett, a historian of that era, wrote... This was an Anglican himself. Quote, these were the worst preachers I ever heard. <laughs> they were ignorant to a reproach, and many of them were openly vicious. They were the dregs and refuse of the northern part of Scotland. We shouldn't be surprised that the church didn't want these hirelings either. Many women and boys especially resisted the preacher's entrance into the pulpits. And well, I just want to close by reading some of the humorous things because the humor is going to quickly turn serious next week. But I want to read to you some of the humorous ways these women and, and children harassed these hirelings, these dregs from the north that the bishops tried to put in their churches. These are all true stories now. Listen. It was chiefly by small annoyances that these women and boys showed their contempt for the curates, for these Anglican teenage preachers. Some would steal the tongue of the church bell, so nobody knew when church was going to take place. Other women and children would barricade the door so as to oblige the preacher to climb in literally through the window. One farm boy found a nest of ants and emptied them into one of the priest's large boots as he was going to the pulpit. Now, that would have been a sight for sore eyes. 
finally under the torture of these insect bites in his boots, this curate was obliged to bring the service to an abrupt conclusion. There's another story about a curate that is a, one of these teenage Highlander preachers. In the West Country, deeply mortified at the extreme thinness of his audience. There weren't many people show up. So he sent a threatening message around to all the women in the church that if they did not appear at church the next day, he would turn them in to the legal authorities. The women obeyed their preacher. But each woman came with a little baby in her arms. And the curate had not long proceeded in his sermon when first one child began to cry, then another, till the whole joined in the chorus. And the voice of the preacher was drowned in a universal squall. It was in vain that he stormed and cursed at the women. They told him it was his own fault and that they could on no account leave their children at home. Next week, it turned serious. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these people of whom the world was not and is not worthy. For Christ's sake, amen. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.